1: This podcast is brought to you by Tethered. Last night, I just got home from vacation. What did this? What was the first thing I did? I headed to my little archery hole in my basement and broke out my my Manis saddle and started kind of continue to make the customizations that I've been working on in the off season. So, if you've been following me, I, I modded some sticks uh, in pre- preparation for this year, looking to get you know more lightweight, a little bit more mobile, and reduce my overall bulk. And the last thing I really needed to do was come up with a configuration to be able to hold my sticks as I climb up. And so the super convenient Molly attachment system that the uh, Tethered Manus saddle has made it really easy for me to attach some paracord, some 550 paracord to it that I could kind of loop over my sticks and be able to climb with both sticks kind of attached to me. So I'm not pulling anything up in the tree. Um, so just really convenient. If you're looking for something that's customizable, you know, with a Molly attachment system, you know, or if you're looking for something that's super lightweight, super mobile and super safe, you're definitely going to want to check out the tethered mantis saddle. Also don't look past the predator platform for any of you out there that are transitioning or potentially thinking of transitioning from a tree stand. I found it to be the easiest transition and you continue to use a platform so there's some familiarity um you know that would be somewhat consistent with what you're used to in a tree stand. So last year I took the plunge and I'm using both the Mana Saddle and the Predator platform and honestly haven't looked back since. If you think uh being more mobile or lighter will help you in the deer woods, go to tetherednation.com to learn more about all their products. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the Truth From The Stand Deer Hunting Podcast. I'm your host, Clint Campbell, and you're listening to episode number 129. Today, I'm again joined by my good friend, Greg Litzinger, a.k.a. Bowhunting Fiend, and we're continuing our three years in review DIY Report mini-series, so stay tuned. All right, all right all right what is going on everyone happy Wednesday to you hope you're doing well out there in the whitetail world me I just got back from vacation uh, it's always a little bit bittersweet coming back from vacation I'm I'm, I'm you know a uh, self-admitted uh, homebody to a degree I like being home I like my house I like my things I like having my my creature comforts if you will uh, but there's also that moment where you realize that you're going back to work. Fortunately, I work with some rad people, so it's not uh, too too awful bad. But nonetheless, uh, back from vacation, did get to do a little bit of whitetail homework while I was on vacation. Snuck in a little bit of that, which was super cool. I've been reading this book. Uh, it was recommended to me by a host of a host of friends, one of which was uh, Greg Litzinger, who's on, on the show with us today. Um, Mapping Trophy Whitetails. Um, super cool. Uh, anyone out there who is looking for a good book to read that wants to get a little bit more knowledgeable <clears throat> about terrain features, and how to you know identify them on a map, and or how deer you know use them in many cases, and in, in, in you know different situations in different types of you know areas of the country. A lot of this is set in the Midwest, though. However, um, but it's super. It's been super helpful. Um, I, I think for some folks, you know, I, I I kind of fall in this category where as I'm reading it, there's a lot of stuff that I'm kind of aware of, um, but there's little nuances and things like stand setups and stuff like that that you know, maybe I just didn't think about it at the time whenever I was looking at these different types of terrain features and stuff. So I'm about halfway through it and it's been, it's been really great. It's, I've been thinking about different setups that I have in relationship to uh, the things that I'm reading in this book and going, oh man, I could probably tweak it a little bit this way or, huh, this is why this stand location, why I thought was going to be dynamite hasn't worked out well for me in the past. It's just like little things about that. Uh, also they get into a little bit about, um, about wind uh playing the wind of course as any good white tail book would do uh, but they talk a little bit about how you know whether you're setting it up on the top of a, a ridge or the middle of the ridge and how the wind kind of plays in terms of coming over a ridge and kind of rolling back almost like this vacuum effect that happens if you listen to anything from Dan Enfault um he talks about this uh as well you know a, a, a thermal tunnel I think is what he refers to it um in in, in some cases but at any rate, uh, it's a really cool book. You should check it out if you're into the if you're into reading whitetail stuff. The other thing I had a chance to do is as I was reading this book, as I actually was pulling up on X and was looking at some of the uh, places in Iowa. As uh, I don't even know if I mentioned it on this podcast, but I did draw an Iowa tag that has been confirmed. So if I mentioned it previously, sorry to repeat. Um, and I'll cover more of this with you know the plans and stuff like that with John. We'll do a uh, we'll do a podcast where we kind of do a prep for the season and what our goals, aspirations, hopes, and dreams are. And, of course, I'll talk about Iowa and and, and that. But what I was doing, you know, I had limited time in Iowa in March. I think it was March where I was out there for a handful of days and scouted for, like, two and a half-ish days with John and looking at a couple different, you know, possibilities for setups. Um, You know, John was acting as my guide, essentially, because he's familiar with this piece of public that I'm going to be hunting. And uh, I dropped some pins, have some locations kind of marked. And so it was helpful kind of as I was reading this book to kind of look at, you know, uh, the, the terrain that I'm going to be hunting in a a couple different possible setups and kind of looking at it through the lens of this, this book and like the recommendations that it's, that it's making. Um, I think I figured out a few spots that I might have overlooked, uh, previously, uh, prior to reading this book. So that was, uh, so that was good news and hopefully it'll be, Hopefully, hopefully it'll be helpful. You know, whenever I get out to Iowa in uh, in November, but uh, I'm not going to belabor this up front a whole lot because uh, I haven't had a whole, uh, you know a ton of uh, opportunity to do a lot of uh, whitetail stuff other than the stuff that I just mentioned since I was on vacation. Um, and sorry that this podcast took so long to get out. It's a little bit, uh, there's a lot of editing that goes on with this, uh, with this DIY report mini series that I'm doing with Greg and, and super appreciative of him jumping on and helping do it. Uh, but this is really the second installment of our three years in review. And if you missed the first one, I'd go back and check that uh, that one out. Because what we're doing is we're basically taking some of the best tidbits and bites from each podcast or from, you know, a select number of podcasts. Greg's kind of going through And finding stuff that really kind of intrigues him. And then we're taking, you know, that 30-second to two-minute soundbite from an old podcast. And then he and I are sitting and kind of dissecting it, talking about, you know, uh, situations that we had that were similar. Um, You know, if we, you know, for example, if there's a strategy that's being talked about from one of our previous guests, we kind of talk about the strategy, how we've used it in the past, if it's worked for us, if it's not worked for us. Um, If it's someone who lives in a different region than we live in, you know, maybe they live in the Midwest, Greg and I are here on the East coast, you know, does the strategy play out the same or does the the tactic play out the same, or do we have to kind of adjust it slightly to get it to work for us? So that's kind of what we do during the course of this DIY uh, report mini series. Uh, super glad that Greg is on to help us out. And what we're going to be talking about on this one is we're going to talk a little bit about sound concealment. Uh, and then we also have, uh, our buddy or my buddy, Jake Elinger on, because I did a couple podcasts with him too, actually. Um, and, uh, we talk a little bit about different, I know in the first session that I did with Greg, we talked about, you know, betting in general and what we get into in this one specifically with Jake or, you know, referring to what Jake had talked about is some isolated betting, uh, isolated buck betting, then isolated buck bedding off doe bedding. And then we also talk about tailwinding. So if these things sound like they're interesting to you, go ahead and listen on. And without further ado, let's get Greg on. All right, this next segment, we are talking to a friend of mine, Adam Lewis, and he. we were talking about cover sound, um, or sound in, sound in general, and specifically, we got on the topic of cover sound, so we'll hear the clip, and then we will discuss.
2: You know, through this process, I kind of came up with these different, what I call rules of sound concealment, and it's just, you know, like you said, you have scent concealment, we've all... Uh, use that before, uh, you know, cover sense, and we can do the same thing with with sounds, with noise that is in the environment that we can use to cover noise we make. You know, it's it's sound masking, right? Right. Uh, we have camouflage for ourselves. We can camouflage sound we make too. So, cover sounds are really everywhere, and it's. I'm I'm sure. I, I mean, I'm guessing this, but I would think you know, Indians would probably use this back in the day. It's really being in tune with your environment. So examples of this, um, some are extreme and some are very subtle, but an extreme example would be like wind. On a real windy day, we probably all realize this. You can sneak in and out really easily because wind blowing through leaves, blowing through trees makes so much noise that it really will mask a lot of and cover a lot of the noise that we make. So cover sound or just
1: sound in general, I think this is one of the things, you know, everyone is all hell bent on beating a deer's nose, right? Um, There's all kinds of scent products out there. I mean, you know, I could probably become a millionaire if I could figure out a way to package and market and sell some type of scent control thing. You know, I think a lot of people understand that deer, of course, hear very well. not saying anything that, not breaking news here. Um, but I think it all, I think it often goes under, underrated when, when, uh, when you're hiking in and out of your, in and out of your stand. Right. Especially like, cause we've talked a couple of times now during this first segment or this first session about, about hunting beds and getting close to beds and stuff like that. And you and I today, when we were practicing, you know, climbing, getting into the saddle, you know what I mean? And the sticks that I cut down and stuff like that, it's like a lot of that that I did wasn't just like for making it lighter, but you know, I'm short. A really long stick for me and a tree to wield around is harder for me to control. And I usually end up hitting something with it or whatever. So a smaller stick for me is a lot easier for me to control, right? It's, they're all taped up and like, I have a specific way that I'm going to carry them in because I can keep them quiet that specific way. And so, you know, as much as we, you know, I guess go into, into massive preparations for our scent control. I think a lot of times we kind of forget about sound, right?
3: Yeah. And that's, uh, and that goes back to, I mean, 30 years I've been doing hunting. Oh, that's depressing. It's a little depressing. Well, I just got but, sad for you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no wonder I need glasses. Oh. <laughs> but, like, my dad was a big, you know, how how we walked in the woods, you know, and um, when we set up and how we moved. You know, mm-hmm. you always move when the wind blew. That's when you move. You know, right. you, you, you do things to mitigate, you know, human Kind of sound that make it more you know, nature esque, I guess, if you will. Right. And I, that, and I think that falls deaf at this day and age because it's hard to make money off it. You know, there's no money to be made like stealth strips and and just what are you going to sell a roll of tape for? Basically, you can't really get right million. You're not gonna I, I can buy hockey off. tape already. I'm all good. Yeah, right. So yeah. they're not. So they're not pushing. It's it, hard. Right? It's hard to sell. So you don't hear about it. But it's basic. You know, it's simple. Walking. You you walk with a purpose. Walk with intent. Especially if there's deer around. Yeah, we talked about that when we were like, packing up. Now that I'm old, if it's daylight, I'm hunting. If I'm walking out of the stand at, at 10, 11, 12 you know, in the day, I'm hunting my way out. I'm not just walking. My arrow's right. knocked. I'm ready to go. Right. Coming in, it's the same thing. And I know I've never kicked deer up in this, this section of, of marsh or swamp. I still have an hour not because there's going to be that one day where I'm ready because right. I've had it in the past where it's like, hey, look, I got two things in my hand. There's a buck staring at me like, hey what's up how's it going right well the
1: one thing is like what what I do see marketed to a degree and people talk about and we're not bashing marketing necessarily here but you know maybe maybe a little bit sometimes um, the uh, where you do see sound talked about and it's funny because it, it's the one place people can make money right is you hear people talk about sound as it relates to their gear like so they're the apparel they're going to wear right that it's that's quiet right which is important. Right, I probably make more noise walking to the stand than I do while I'm sitting in my stand. Just yeah. you know, going to say that. We also hear it talked about whenever you're getting in and out of your tree, right? Like the quietness of a stand yeah. or sticks, or it, what, how dead the sound is, and so forth. So we so we take care of sound once we're actually there and and situated, but we don't hear a lot about the to your point to the walk in and how to mitigate it because you can't sell someone a product to be quieter walking in. Yeah, it's education. Yeah, right. it's experience, right? Yeah. Or it's helping someone understand, like, hey, like, so I was talking to you, and this is this is why having good hunting buddies is important, right? Because I was having a hard time hunting that oh, swamp last year. Buddy. You're my hunting buddy, man. Yeah. Yeah, we're hunting buddies. <laughs> just Not today, great. though. Just, just good, just, just good ones. In yeah. So, so last year I was hunting that swamp, right? And I had sent you some pictures of deer that I had in daylight, you know. And I was like, man, they're showing up at like two, or three o'clock in this spot, and you're like, you're right on top of their 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 bed, like they're yeah. that comfortable that yeah. time of day, like they're eating right around there. They got everything they need. Like you're in a good spot. Unfortunately, those deer kind of moved on. I went to Ohio and mm-hmm. hunted and then they were gone by the time I came back. But darn it. I was, yeah, I know I was having a hard time getting in there because there's really only one way in and one way out. And you and I talked about this and I've explained this on the podcast before, but what you had end up mentioning to me, and I knew this, I just didn't think about it at the time was you said, if that's the only way in and only way out and you're possible and you've run into deer on the way in Does it make sense to wait until those deer get back to bed and then walk in? And then your next question to me was, how close are you to the road? And I said, well, I'm walking right off a road that's pretty busy. And you were like, try timing your steps when you get through that thick shit right at the front till you get to a more open spot and time it when the traffic comes by. And I started doing that like immediately and stopped bumping deer. And that's what we're talking about whenever it's like when you're talking about like, it's not so much sound concealment. It's using the sound around sound you to cover management. It. Yeah, sound management. There you go. Yeah. Look at that. Yeah. I think you just marketed something. Yeah. <laughs> like, everyone owes Greg five bucks. Yeah, <laughs> write that down. Write that down. So you know that's really what we're talking about is that you're not going to mitigate your sound. You can do as much as you can to be quiet, right? You can go in if you have the liberty to to shoot, you know, or to do some trimming on your way in. You know, I know guys who carry you know pruning shears with them when they walk in and clip branches as they're walking through that are going I've to possibly yeah. scuff up with against sticker their wear. bushes. Yeah. yeah.
3: Especially with the stand and sticks. Cause those sticker bushes like, yeah, I, I, don't like have,
1: I don't have that problem with a saddle or my, uh, in my, mm-hmm. in my, in my sticks at this point, yeah. which is another reason why <laughs> yeah. I moved to that gear. So <laughs> 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 dun, 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 right. <laughs> a little marketing there.
3: But uh, cause I remember uh, in high school reading an article about a guy who was bear hunting or moose hunting and he's in this big open pasture and whatever he was, you know, he's spotting stalking either moose or a bear. And it was a standstill. It was dead, quiet, crunchy leaves, like, cutting or crunchy grass. It couldn't do anything. And the animal's moving off. All of a sudden, the plane goes by, this big, low, low-flying low plane. And that was, he capitalized on that. And he made his move, and he got within range because I think he was shooting a recurve, you know, or back then, you know, most people weren't, you know, taking 40, 50-yard shots with the compounds right, that were yeah. made. And he closed the distance because... He was in a flight path of a of an air, airport, I guess. Mm-hmm. And those animals, it's normal to him. It's it it's like a road, hunting near a road, near whatever, every day. Yep, yep. And he used that to his advantage, and boom, and, and got shot and you know killed the animal. And it's like that is just comes from wisdom, time, you know, and, and a <laughs> get lucky almost, you know. Yeah, yeah.
1: But I mean, that was the way I moved. That in, anytime I hunted that spot, that's how that's how I moved. You know, yep. It even paid dividends, you know. And I don't. This is why I couldn't believe I didn't think of it, but when we were in um, Montana on that elk hunt, when my buddy um, Shimer and I got on that bull, the way we were able to break the distance and get him to come in because he was not willing to like come in but so close because there was a herd bull that was nearby, and he mm. was we were cow calling. He would come in, and then we'd move away because he was afraid he was going to get his ass kicked yeah. if he came too far, right? So what we ended up doing was is we would call... And then he would bugle and when he was, and we were getting the cadence of his bugle, you know what I mean? Like we could tell he would, his bugle would last so long and then he would chuckle three times and then he would be done. Right. And so we would call and he would bugle. So we knew we had so much time and then we would run because he can't hear us while he's bugling. You know what I mean? And then we would run as hard as we could through the timber counting, knowing that we have like 15 seconds or whatever it was to a spot. And once we hit 15 seconds, we would stop and we would just listen we wait a little bit and we would call again and then we would do right. it all over again. And that was honestly how we got within probably 80 yards of him. And once we got within 80 yards, he was comfortable and he came in the rest of the way and we shot yep. him at 26, yep. you know? So it, that was another way of using, it's a little different, right? Cause it's yep. not white tails. We were using, but Yeah, his, it's the
3: same, it's the same on, on anything. It's just using it's, your surroundings. Yeah. And it's things that you, you like to hear more people talk about, but it's kind of basic, simple. It's, you know, I guess with anything, you can't really spin it. You can only spin it so many ways. Like we were mm. talking about that earlier. You can only spin hunting so many ways or, or tactics so many ways. Yeah. You know, but basic using whatever you have to your advantage. Yeah. You know, if uh, you hunt near, like I used to hunt up along the river, Delaware River, and waves come crashing in, you know, or, you know, tugboats and whatnot, use that when you made your move. Right. Yeah, this, I mean, the buck I killed this year, super windy in the mountains we were not moving i got down you know end up killing my buck You know, up out of his bed it was so windy and there's so much movement you know i could actually kind of still hunt kind of fast faster than i would ever really still hunt right but it was so windy and there's you know, you know waist-high brushes whipping back and forth well that allowed me to cover you know five six you know 800 yards relatively fast and right up to where I thought Peter might be, and there was that bucks, you know, sleeping. Right. (laughs) You know, and even when he jumped up, it was so much chaos and and stuff going around. He didn't know what jumped out of his bed. He knew something wasn't right. He jumped up, you know, and he's looking all around, but there's leaves blowing, limbs falling. It was like 40-mile-an-hour winds. I can't believe he didn't see me because I'm like, I can't believe this guy's not running away, but he didn't, he knew something wasn't right, but he didn't know where it was. He's looking all around because all this chaos is going, you know? Right. And yep. I end up shooting them, you know? Yep. So nice. use your, you use whatever you got to your advantage. Yeah.
1: Moral of the story is uh, take advantage of your natural surroundings yep. to the best of your ability. And uh, it's not necessarily always a product that needs to be bought. Yep. Yeah. All right. So we'll uh, move on to the next segment. Sound marketing. All right. This next segment is with our buddy Jake Elinger. Um, and what he's talking about in this segment when we had him on Is, you know, if you know anything about Jake, he's uh, great at setting up habitat. He's kind of a habitat guru. We've been fortunate enough to have a few of those guys come on here over the course of the couple of years, the past three years. But what he's talking about specifically in this one is isolated bedding, and specifically isolated bedding as it relates to him creating isolated bedding on his property in Michigan. So we'll hear from Jake, and then we'll talk about isolated bedding. Uh, It's
4: hard to explain it unless you see it. But the reality is uh, it's it's a combination of hinge cutting, and I use that term isolated bedding. You know, and I know you, you were like, what does that mean, right? Right. And, and, you know, when it comes to doe family groups, you know, be that three or four adult does and their one or two fawns, it could be a group of five, seven, eight, nine uh, antlerless deer, and they're all related, so they all like to bed together. So those are larger, I call them community bedding areas and you, you use a combination of the hinge cutting and notch and fall to open canopy, create early successional growth, provide all the cover and the browse for these doe family groups. And they like to be able to see each other and groom each other in the, in the summer and, and fall and everything's good. But, and so do the bucks during the summer, you know, they're all pals and they kiss each other and lick each other's face and and, you know, uh, all, you know, if you run any cameras or watch them, you know, they're all pals, but now that they've gone hard antler, everything's changing really fast for these older mature bucks. So they, so they seek isolated areas where they don't have to deal with each other. anymore. And so I spend a lot of time creating isolated areas that are just large enough for one or two deer to utilize, but with you know, extremely good cover leading to and from those locations. All right. So
1: what we heard here is a little bit of a little bit of what Greg and I have talked about there in this, you know, recently, the, you know, the past couple segments all kind of starting to coalesce together. Right. We talked about Velvet, you know, going hard horn, the transition that Jake mentioned whenever the Bucks and, you know, kind of get out of their bachelor bachelor groups. Um, also talking about betting and how kind of important that is. Um, you know, Jake's talking specifically, as I'd mentioned in the intro, uh, in this instance about, you know, him creating isolated betting. but, you know, Greg and I were kind of discussing this and it's, you know, whether you're on public or whether you're on private, you know, or I guess it's talked public specifically here. It's like there is isolated betting. It's not that it has to be, be created and it's just bucks finding, are you finding the small pockets that bucks want to go to, to get away from not just pressure, you know, but also just to get away from other deer. They don't yeah. want the social anxiety. So, yes.
3: Yeah, it's, um and that's just you know years of of hunting trying to find you know beds and uh, bedding areas and I find isolated bedding in some of the weirdest spots. it's not necessarily the furthest from the road, furthest from the trailhead, uh, you know the deepest you know, darkest part of the woods. sometimes it's right off a cart road that everybody yeah. bypasses and that might not seem isolated, but deer, you know, does don't necessarily go there. You know, a buck in bed off a cart where, first of all, you can watch who, who's coming and going. Yep. You know, he can smell, he can see. And, you know, it's a spot that's overlooked. So isolated bedding doesn't necessarily mean, like I said, the, the furthest part from anything. It could be, you know, I got a spot I just stumbled upon. <laughs> or actually, you know, same area I found that, that giant shed this year. Mm-hmm. I was walking back to the truck and I was like, let me just check this, this spot. And I could see my truck know it was a single giant bed because there's only one place to park there. You know, to hunt that section of marsh. There's only because you can't park on the side of the road. You have to right. park designated spots. This bed is watching that parking lot. Yeah. And you would how? Why? You? I know why. Because right. he he's there before before daylight. Yep. And he's watching that parking lot. All right, nobody's here today. All right, I can go this way. All right, somebody's there. All right, I'll just wait till dark and go this way. Yeah. And it's like it. It's so. It's random. I won't call it random, but it's so strategic. You know, yeah. isolated betting, I guess, is very strategic. It's not just some random spot in the woods. Well,
1: that's a good point because I, I want to build on that for a second. Because isolated betting, like, I if you're out there listening, like you're probably painting a picture in your mind's eye of like this area that a buck is betting in that is just gnarly and almost impenetrable, right? Because when you think isolation, yeah. you think like encompassed, yes. right? Engulfed, right?
3: Encompassed, yeah.
1: right? Yeah. But like, that's not the case. Like, cause to your point, it's like, so almost, well, similarly, so two examples, similarly to what you're talking about, where that, that deer was bedded off the parking yeah. lot, the swamp that we were, that I hunted last year, we've talked about it a bunch of times, hard getting in yeah. access sucked. Right. Why? Cause I, I jumped two bucks going in there, all bedded at the entrance of that swamp. Why? Cause they knew it was the only way in and it was the only way out. And it was only thirty yards off someone's driveway. Yep. Literally in a brush pile off their driveway. <laughs> yep. I jumped him twice yep. out of there, right? Which was probably the big one and unfortunately course, for me, yeah. right? Because if I were the big one, if I yeah. cause if you think about it like a deer, right? And you say, If I don't want to get killed in here, where would I bet? I would bet at the be, I would yep. bet right where he was bedded. Yeah. All day. You know yeah, what I mean? And that's
3: that suburban, almost like a suburban mentality to deer. Yep. You know, like like Rick. And- double longer yep. he has the same these deer will just bed and they know they're safe just off someone's fence line or like said a random brush pile or a tree that fell down but they can see the backyard or yep. a danger a uh, hunter might come from they can see it and you know, slip out the back yep. door just let them walk on by yep you
1: know, and, the second odd place was I was literally got through the swamp or through the beginning of the swamp where it opens up it's still swamp but it kind of opens up into a hardwood And there's not shit in there really for browse like this time of year. And you would think that he's covered up, right? That he's somewhere hidden. He was literally laying out in the middle of the open. sunning himself (laughs)
3: like a dog, right?
1: (laughs) But also, like I was thinking, I was like, why the hell was that deer just bedding out in the middle of nowhere? I was like, it was literally just like he was bedding in the middle of this open timber. I was like, because he can see everywhere. I was like, there, and it's just, I mean, it's all blow down in there yeah. and shit. So it's so loud walking in yeah. there. Anything that moves through there makes some type yeah. of noise, right? And that was why he was there.
3: And some, and the noise factor, I found deer bed in, in random open spots where they can see because the, the the noise cuts down what they can hear. Right. So they'll use another senses, you know, their, their nose plus their eyes, you know. That makes they, sense. You know sometimes they can't cover all three things so the, the two out of three is better than one out of three you know right so, right so right. if it's you know near an airport or near a road but well, noise is you know th- so they're going to bed in spots where they can see and and use the scent to their best advantage mhm yeah you know?
1: so i think the other thing to mention too is you know i think the one thing that's overlooked when bucks transition cuz everyone's like bucks transition you know when they go hard horn or testosterone spikes they want to get away from other bucks they want to start you know putting forth their dominance of the area or whatever which yes all this stuff is true but the other thing that they're avoiding is the social the social pressure of like fawns and does running around doe family groups you know the the chasing and stuff that goes on the plane at the font like bucks don't want to deal with that yeah. right it's like they're they're not into that into that game so whatever they can do to get as far away from that as possible so if you're hunting private ground or you own a farm or you're hunting a farm it's i'm not going to say because i've heard dan and talk about finding a buck bed and right off the edge of a off of a field because it was a place no one was ever going right but i more often than not at least in my experiences like they weren't betting there typically it was always several hundred yards away from wherever the first doe group betting was Mm -hmm. the bucks were another two to three hundred yards beyond that somewhere right and so for us that was on top the mountain where i found the buck bed the one time there was one instance where they were betting on this cliff edge along a field and there was only one way in and one way out and there was a cliff so nothing could come from the, yeah. from the back side of them they could only come in from the front you know which would have been the north or the east or the west there was nothing coming from their south or from their six if we're yeah. talking military terms yes. um <laughs> I'm on your six I'm on your... get off my six yeah. dude why are uh, you behind me <laughs> the
3: uh,
1: but yeah so i think isolated betting isn't just you know bucks transitioning you know turning hard horn, testosterone spiking. It's for a bunch of different reasons and it's not necessarily always in the classic spots you would think of in terms of bedding. They'll bed in some weird ass places. Mm-hmm. And that can also be considered isolated betting so long as they're isolating themselves from the bullshit
3: that's going on that they don't want to be part of. Right. And I, I when they when they transition, I think bigger or older deer will don't want to be bothered as much or have a deer that's the same similar size or social status is one another. Because you'll see a, a, a spike in a four pointer like hanging out with a you know, a deer that's two or three years older. Right. But very very rarely do you see two, you know, four year old deer like, Hey it's October. What's up, Paul? Nothing much, Bob, let's go hang out. Right. It's not really happening. Yeah. You know, deer will separate within, you know, I guess the social hierarchy. Like right. little guys can hang around like I uh, you know, I had a, a quick story instance this year. A big swamp buck came in on me. It's a big I mean, big, gnarly, old, could barely walk, and he had a nice, wide, like, nice seven-pointer. Mm-hmm. Well, the big guy came in, cut my tracks, knew something wasn't right, and you know, I don't have a doe, I don't have a buck tag because I didn't shoot a doe, so I had to watch this deer fifteen yards right. you know, for like a half hour, eat acorns, and I'm like, "You're killing me," you know, just leave, please leave. Right? And he goes off. He knew something wasn't right, but he's still eating, you know, because he caught wind or, or something wasn't right, you know, that sixth sense that they got. Well, the seven pointers eating all around, and they go feet off all of a sudden that seven pointer is coming right back i mean beelining my trail what i walked on right to me and i'm like what the fuck is this guy doing and i'm i'm only like 10 foot off the ground so like i'm kind of moving looking all around and I, i'm looking for the big guy i'm like well i am trying to get some footage of him or something right i'm looking all around i, I can't see him and the seven pointer is almost like smelling my tree i look up there's that big guy he's off in the distance in the dark looking for movement in the tree he caught my track, and pretty much I think that's why the they, they, you know they keep little deer around. Sometimes he made that seven pointer follow that scent right to my tree, so he could see where I was bedded, because he knew I beat him, because right. he knew something wasn't right there at fifteen yards, you know, twelve yards, and then he knew he got a whiff of Greg, you know, a hundred yards up. He made that little deer come back and go right to my tree, and was this bigger deer was just looking up in trees, and I'm like, you motherfucker, I said, like, and know. I'm like, that's why. Deer are are you know here in Jersey are a different creature, a pressured deer, because he literally wanted to know that he was beat and he had to double check, you know, because right. he was never he was long gone, never be seen again. You know? Right, he was a gangster. Yeah, is what it was. He was a gangster. He deer. Yeah. He said out the little guy. Go ahead, Paul, save yeah. it safe. Good. You know. Oh,
1: you don't want to go? How about how about I just whoop your ass yeah, right exactly. here? <laughs> you, know, you, you go ahead on out there and check it out for me. So that was how that deer, lucky I was hunting. That's how I got beat. Was. So it was the opening weekend. Now I know we're getting off the topic of of isolated bedding, but, you know, talking about deer that will hang out together. So everyone always thinks the bachelor groups break up like end of September, -September, mid-September, right? Sure. For the most part, yeah, they do start to break up. You won't see, you know, like you do out in a bean field, you'll see six, seven, eight bucks maybe somewhere hanging out together, right? It gets mid-September, getting close to October. You might see two or three yeah. that are hanging out, right? It's like so. It's not like they all of a sudden like a, a like a, an alarm goes off and they all just like yeah. disperse completely, you. right? Yeah. Um, so I was hunting lucky. I was set up for him on that opening opening day. I knew where he was bed and kn- he was on the neighbors. I couldn't kill him over there. There was one funnel he was going to have to come through, so I set up on that pinch point as he was going to make his way to a food source. He came in within 30 yards, but he came in with two other bucks. He came in with he was that year. He was a four and a half year old. There was a nice up and coming two and a half year old. He was with that I also had on camera, and then there was this little shithead Spike. (laughs) (laughs) Lucky the big one and the the two and a half year the two and a half year old wasn't a slouch. Like he was he was a nine point. You know he was a nice deer for two and a half. You know Um, probably would have let him go. You know Mm -hmm. most most likely would have been hard to, but knowing that he was young and you know, had a chance I might've passed him, but they were standing behind this brush just 30 yards away. I needed five more steps. Well, they came in on like one trail, right? Like the trail I anticipated them coming in. Well, this little spike comes from like, so if I'm sitting in my tree, for those of you that are listening, like I'm sitting looking at Greg and let's just pretend I'm facing North, right? This buck comes from my, I guess it was like Southeast, like basically over my right hand shoulder, right? Just starts working his way up. I got the wind. Like I'm good. Mm. Right. It's I've got the wind for all three of the deer. Good to go. He walks up, gets right underneath my tree, all of a sudden the wind shifts, he gets a whiff, he just stops. Lucky in that other deer never never caught my wind. It was a little shithead yeah. below me, and he just got all stiff legged and started backing out. Yeah. Right. So it's the same instant it was the same thing where yeah. he just turned around and walked away, and then the deer that I was yeah. trying to kill just walked away too. Like he yeah. never knew I was there. He didn't yeah. He. He wasn't, his ears never went up. He just, he kept browsing the whole time. As soon as he saw that little deer kind of like stiffen up, he was like, it wasn't like he got super antsy. He just kind of popped his head up and was like, something got weird. All right, let's go ahead and get out of here. And just like turned around and walked away. Yeah. You know, and it's like, and so I think you're right, man. It's like, I think that they...
3: You know, it's I, almost like a, an apprentice. You got the big guy and there's an apprentice. Yeah, know?
1: it's like they'll keep a they'll keep a lackey around. and yeah, yeah. Be like, hey man, why don't yeah, go you go catch, catch that? that. Yeah. Why don't you go catch that arrow for yeah. me? Yeah. <laughs> so, but that is, uh, I guess, Greg and I's conversation on isolated betting. Yes. So I think the takeaway is is that you know it doesn't happen where you always think it is. Um, well, is-
3: isolated is let the very little pressure, and sometimes isolated means, you know, uh, they can check entrance and exit routes. Yeah. You know, being- simple. You know, keep it. You know, keep a simple stupid. It's yep. not necessarily you don't need to travel the furthest. You got to travel. You know, what's best for the year? like said strategic. Yep, exactly. How's that yep. they're going to live the longest on said property? Right.
1: Yeah, and that's where the isolated isolated betting will probably be. Yeah, yep. awesome. All right, this next segment is uh, still with our buddy Jake Elinger, and <clears throat> he references isolated uh, buck betting here again, but more specifically in reference to how he uses dough bedding with that isolated buck bedding to set up some ambush opportunities and this is really probably more you know rut specific so we'll we'll uh, we'll hear the take and then we'll discuss it
5: this upcoming concert season will be all about the boots and Takovis as your stop for the best in western style to has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer including men's and women's boots apparel hats bags and more
4: I don't go in and hunt those individual bedding areas very often. I mean, there are strategies I do have to hunt them. But generally, I try to get fairly close. Like I have gotten within, say, 60 yards of an isolated buck bedding area, and I just happen to be in a transition travel corridor that he would move out of and kind of come in to circle downwind of a, of a doe bedding area, I, know I an existing known doe bedding area. And that's where I try to pick him off at, <laughs> to use a better term, I guess.
1: All right. So we've talked about isolated bedding. We've talked a little, we've talked about regular kind of buck bedding, right? Uh, to a, to a degree. So we're doing a lot of bedding talk here in these first couple, couple segments. And what he's kind of referring to here now is doe bedding, which in my opinion, as I've, learn more and more from guys like Jake or guys like Dan or yourself. You know, I'm looking at Greg for those of you that don't know who I'm looking at. <laughs>
3: I'm talking myself in the mirror. <laughs> yeah.
1: Um, you know, Chad or who, whoever, right. I, I think, I think earlier on, you know, several years ago, I probably over-prioritized buck betting and it's, I think it's extremely important. Right. But I think I underrated um, the opportunities around dough betting. Right. And I was probably focusing a lot more on, you know, transitions, travel corridors, and stuff like that to hunt bucks during the rut versus really kind of focusing in on doe bedding, right? right. So, you know, talk to me, I guess, Greg, a little bit about, you know, doe bedding, isolated buck bedding, mm-hmm. how these things kind of work together. Mm-hmm.
3: Speaking on, a like, a, a since I've been doing hunting a long, a long time, uh, as most of you know, but doe bedding was, you always heard, hunt the does, you know, you see the bucks. Well, I did that for years and never... Never played out because I didn't take t- into c- in consideration, you know, the the buck bedding, off the doe bedding. I'd hunt right on the doe bedding. I would never see bucks mm-hmm. for years. I scratched my head. I couldn't figure out what I was doing wrong. You know, I worked on the entry exits, and as I became more buck bed specific hunter year round, I kind of tripped up on, you know, hearing people and reading about it those isolated beddings off doe bedding. These bucks, especially older deer, they don't just run around the woods. You know, the younger guys, they're very strategic on on how they move. And sometimes they'll bed off these doe bedding areas. And I'm my own worst enemy because even though I knew about it, I I didn't really capitalize on it until recently where I actually started these last couple of years focusing on doe bedding, but also where a buck would bed in relation to said doe bedding. Because I still prefer hunting you know, a specific bed, you know, because bedding areas can be big, wide, huge. If you don't have a be funnel. Couple, it can be a couple acres. Yeah. Yeah, so, yeah, so I look for, you know, if there's no funnel or anything, I look for, um, find the does, if I kick a bunch of does up. I'll break it down look for a buck bed, a specific buck bed that's rut-based, you know, and set up off of that buck bed that is off the doe bedding. Because, right. like I said, if you're in a big woods, I hunt someone, it's, there's no rhyme or reason. A, right. They bed here but they kind of just come and go as they please because the wind goes this way, that way. So you don't really know, but if you can, you know, my biggest deer-to-date was off of a, he was isolated bedding off a scraping area, which is high doe, you know, doe travel corridor. And that's how I killed my biggest deer-to-date. And it's like, "Ah, ah." And it took so long. And even after I killed him, I'm like, this is how it's working. I still went against, like, what I should be doing because I'm like, I'm stubborn and I'm kind of So were you,
0: were you, were
1: you prioritizing prior to prior to that? Were you prioritizing more the classic hunting, doe bedding during the rut on the downwind side? Yes. And that was kind of like the yes. the approach. Mm-hmm. And look, that's that's a good tactic too, right? You know, and I think it's a you know, good
3: tactic for some people. And I've never killed a deer right. doing that. But if you
1: can get in between a bed, <laughs> yeah, in a doe bedding area, right, you're you're sitting pretty good. Because yeah. to your point earlier, where Look, a doe bedding area can be however big, right? Mm-hmm. So you don't know exactly where they're at per se, mm-hmm. right? It's like they could be anywhere on this two to ten to fifteen, mm-hmm. however many acres this mm-hmm. is, right? Then you're really prioritizing that isolated bedding or a, a travel corridor, a pinch point mm-hmm. of some sort to pinch them down around that doe bedding on the downwind side, knowing that like if they're if they're going to check this, they're going to probably have to come mm-hmm. through here, right? I want to ask you because you mentioned scrape, and I was actually mm-hmm. going to get to this. So, whenever we're talking isolated doe bedding off, I'm sorry, isolated buck bedding off of doe bedding, rut time period specific, do you find that that isolated buck bedding is often right off of primary scrapes?
3: In that time of year, that late October, yeah, they bed close to scrapes. Okay. I, I'm, a, I'm a firm believer in that. Because uh, I've heard John Eberhardt talk about yeah. this because he will hunt primary scrape areas.
1: Yeah. And the reason being is because he's like, a buck will come in at, 10 o'clock or at shit that say you know at gray light yeah. and lay down off of off of a, a primary scrape area knowing that those are going to funnel back through to bed yeah. or they're going to get up and move during the midday and they're going to come past that scrape and he wants to be there to intercept
3: yeah. yes I'm a, I'm a you know and that's I think reading his books and watching his DVDs along with you know Dan's and a few other people like all these things kind of start came coming at, together yeah, yeah and it's like Ah, why am I so stubborn? You know? And like, I knew what to do, but preach. Yes. And it's like, <laughs> it took somebody else's words, like book or DVD. And it's like, I'm an idiot. Like this whole time, I knew what I should be doing, but I'm, we a remorse enemy. It's like, yeah. I, I'm still going to stick to my guns. I wanted to do the dough bedding and everything. And it's like, you know what? Like we can still hunt. And it's just, like I said, it, it was like a, a light switch went off and it's like, how many years have I wasted? I know. It's right. It's like, and now, like last year, um, i had so many good encounters with, I mean, never had that many big bucks within 15 yards. Mm-hmm. Couldn't get any shots because that's just how hunting goes sometimes. But yep. I made it my mission to find those small pockets of, of a small doe bedding area where is either water had it or a blowdown or something forced them to go this way. So right. if something had to go here, all right, those are here, they're bedded here, a buck's going to come through here, you know one or two ways and it was like i mean unbelievable like i didn't kill any of them i mean i seen a, I mean, I seen a possible booner uh, at 15 yards you know like wow. 10 yards you know and right. it's like wow this does work and it was right. like so like refreshing it was like it rejuvenated in my rejuvenated my rut because i'm the world's worst rut hunter
1: i know you've always told me it's like <laughs> you hate the rut it's, it's like you tell me that all the worst,
3: time because i see the deer but Seeing and killing is two different things. Right. You know, and I'd see them at 40 yards, 50 yards, like running. Well, that's not helping me. You know, it's like, hey, thanks. Eh, see, right. see, see you later. later. Never see you again. Appreciate it. You know, and and that's why I prefer October. You know, they're more predictable. Right. But even as I've broken down the bedding, the isolated buck bedding off doe bedding, bucks are predictable. You know, they're going to move a, a certain way, but it has to be in, in the perfect you know, scenario. Right and the big woods I, I haven't figured it out yet. I'll still give it a go, but I haven't been able to put that you know puzzle together during November because days same with the mountains. Days just come and go.
1: Yeah, I mean we. It's Chad and I've talked about that, and I know he specifically has talked about it with Jeff Sturgis because there's a uh, place in Ohio that's the big wood setting that we've that we've hunted. Mm. Jeff's hunted there. I've hunted there with Chad. Yeah. And we've talked about like, the idea of like long lines of movement, like, and how that it impacts you know just the overall movement of the deer during the rut yeah. and stuff like that. And it's just it's really hard to get a beat on them because, especially in that particular area, you know, like they could be bedding anywhere there. You know what I mean? It's like I think I found, or Chad and I together found one bed the one time I went to scout with him. I know yeah. he knows where there's 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 others because he's hunted that piece you know and has scouted it more thoroughly than he I have that for himself. It's like, yeah, he kept that part for himself, exactly. The uh, But, you know, the big woods is just a different animal when it comes to finding beds. I mean, even doe bedding, I mean, it, because this is the thing. It's like he, he was on does that year we were there. He had does bedding like 20 yards mm. from him, right? He saw them lay down. November. Yeah. Not a single buck. Right here, this guy. In, like, three days. You know what I mean? Like, he sat on bedded does for three days, like, where all three days he watched them walk in 20 yards away, lay down, and not a single buck come by to check it. You
3: know what I mean? Deer density's low, and the fact that there's other hot does, easier location. And that's what, going back to what you were saying earlier about the time stamping, like, Chad had, this ridge was hot November 2nd and, and 4th. This one was 7th. And this buck's just going through the motion. Be, you know, like a finger. Yep. Go check here. All right, check here. And it's all one or two days. Nothing here. Hang around for a little bit. Nope. Go mm-hmm. over here. And then Bigwood settings, they don't really move much. There's water. There's little creeks. They can kind of go up and down a finger ridge, a buck of weight, hold out. Nothing there. All right, go up here. Nothing. Right. Go up here. So they're moving, but they might not be moving much. Right. You know, and if you're on the wrong ridge, like you, we, we've both hunt mountains in the rut. And if you're in the wrong ridge, you're screwed. Is, This is the worst. Yeah. Ten hours of your life, like someone just killed. It's so like it's I, just I'm like, just looking for proof of life at that yeah. point. Like it's <laughs> like, and you got two or three days out, you're like, please just kill me right now. It's just yeah. kill me because I can't do this. You know? Yeah, yeah. So all right, so that's isolated
1: buck bedding, off doe bedding, and dough bedding in in general. Yes. So we'll uh, we'll jump to the next segment. See, see. All right. So we're Jakey Linger. One more segment with him. Learned. This one we're talking about learning, t- <laughs> learning, learned, talking about uh tailwinding and uh talking about the different ways deer will travel with the wind and uh the popular knowledge of being that deer always are traveling you know with the wind in their favor you know which this kind of flies in the face of that and then we'll talk about some of the things that we've seen and experienced.
4: Yeah, yeah, we actually the wind the wind would be say to this deer's back instead of that deer trying to angle with its nose into the wind you know or or angling into the wind cuz they never go perfectly straight into a you know for Hey, they got, they got places to travel, but, uh, right. but sometimes they'll do, uh, you know, that most of the time they want to get out of their bedding area or their security area and move nose into the wind of, of some level. But, uh, I have seen them do the opposite and that is tailwinding. And that's, that's when they're in a very secure area. They feel very comfortable with, and uh, they never run into people there, you know? All right.
1: So that was Jake talking about tailwinding, as I mentioned on the upfront, and, uh, you know, popular belief, I think for a lot of folks when they, so I think the wind is probably one of the hardest things to figure out, right? Just hunting the wind in general, right? Because deer smell and use the wind like we see, yes. right? They, it's almost like they smell in 3d. Yes. If that, if that makes sense, oh, you I f- mean? You yeah, like that? Like it's that. coined that one yeah. too. Yeah. We should have Write shirts. Yeah. yeah.
3: Smell of 3d. Smell
1: the, smell of the 3d, yeah. um, yeah. You know, and I think whenever people first start using the wind, and I was guilty of this, right? So I think as you evolve as a hunter, it's like you, you know, the wind starts to become an important piece when you want to start hunting good deer, right? And you want to try to have more consistency um, and at least more encounters, more consistent encounters. Um, and so the popular belief is I think early on for everybody is that, you know, the deer is going to travel with the wind, right? And then I think as you start giving the deer the wind, you know, you realize, well, if I'm giving the deer the wind, I'm pretty much effing myself all day, right? You know, um, and so there's a bunch of different ways to do this, right? You'll hear, and we'll cover this in like a couple of segments down the road, you know, I forget who it is that we're talking with, but where we'll start talking about the off wind a little bit and stuff like that. But in this instance, we're talking about tailwind. And so, you know, I've seen it very rarely, me personally, right? I know you've seen it more often than me, but you know, you have an interesting take on like why you kind of think you see, you know, or when you see deer using a tailwind, why they're using it.
3: Yeah, no. I I speak from, you know, hunting in in the mountains and and the salt marsh. It kind of – salt marsh, more evening-based versus the mountains. So I'll I'll tackle the salt marsh and and swamps in general. More more time in the evening. If I see a mature buck and the wind's perfect for me and and I see him for some strange reason come up out of his bed and, you know, the wind's not – you know, he's not doing the crosswind but it's actually, you know, more of a tailwind and he's just walking along this route – no care in the world. And this deer, you know, three years old, four years old. And Smart deers. Yeah, right. Yeah. And you're like, what the fuck's this deer doing? And for years, I always thought because he's, you know, he's either in a rush or he wants to get somewhere or someone bumped him out. But as I've evolved as a hunter, that's his safe zone. If he's going to walk tailwind, you know, at any point in time on any property, that's a spot like we talked about before going back and you need to investigate because that's his safe zone. Mm-hmm. If he's going to walk an area with, a, with the wind that is back, he's done that hundreds of times. I've never had an encounter of a human. being. Has
1: never had a negative experience there. So most what, likely, or yeah. very few, if yep. any, and they weren't, yep. um, and they weren't disastrous yep. negative experiences. And, or he
3: uses that tailwind to get you. Know, I I want to access this field or this bedding area, but I need to get the thermals in my favor. They'll tailwind you know, from time to time to get. They'll. Maybe Interesting. thirty yards, whatever, or no. to start to work the thermal, yeah, or, or, or work a different angle into you know said field or whatever. And in the morning, because I'm primarily a, a bed hunter in the mountains, I've had them tailwind coming into bed, which goes against all that. Yeah, because usually they want the wind in, and they'll j hook around. And, and, yeah, and I try to tell people I've gotten literally, I mean, I've gotten angry messages on social media saying. I'm lying. I shouldn't be spreading rumors. I don't know what I'm talking about. And I'm like, I can show you the video. Like, I, here's a link to the video of the deer I killed doing this. Like, it's not rumor. Like, if it's his primary bed in the morning, he's been in that bed. Never had any. You know, he's betting there. That, like, that's his bed. You know, five days out of the week. And if it's getting light and he needs to get to his bed, he's going to get to that bed the shortest, straightest line possible. Right. he's not going to set check he's not gonna he knows that bed's safe he's never had a bad encounter he's gonna go right into it and I'm a firm believer in the main you know a, a true primary bed who he can he'll go into that almost any scenario that that that's feasible because he wants the bed down he doesn't want to be out he doesn't want to be moving or in like his mi- in his
1: mind being so if you played the percentages right in his mind, there's a higher percentage of something bad happening if I'm if I'm out. Yes, if I'm take a long time, way Right,
3: you you're going to run into people. There's people over there. I got to get fucking my bed. Yeah, it's right. it's 200 yards away. I could beeline. I'll right. run it. I'll get right in. There. And
1: the percentage chance of something bad happening once I get to that bed yeah. is low cuz I've, never, because had I've encounter- never had that happen.
3: Yes. You know, and that's strictly primary bedding. You know, right. and same with the tailwind in the evening. That's strictly like his safe zone where he's never had encounters. And you find them but they're a, a true rarity. You know, it's a the unicorn <laughs> the, race, the unicorn. yeah, yeah. You, know, you find them it's like and a lot of times it's it's a single deer bed like in the mountains i when i killed this guy here one off my right here the day before my buddy was setting up on a bed tripped and fell right at gray lake because he was laking up there and a single deer blew out he was on the leeward side next morning i killed him and that bed where my buddy you know slipped and is never had another deer bed in it. Hmm. So I think it was him bedding in there because my buddy's getting in there late. The deer got in there, you know, right at gray light. Right. Uh, We just timed it wrong, you know, and he slipped and fell on some rock and then boom, deer blew out. And the next morning, the wind shifted so I hunted the other side pretty much directly over this ridge. (laughs) It was a uh, a bed and I killed him and that deer, and to this day, there's there's no, that bed is, so I think I Hmm. killed that deer personally, you know? Right. And that was, the morning I killed him was a, as a leeward, but it was like an off leeward. It, it was a horrible wind, really. Like it was like a swirling leeward, but more tail. And he came in, pretty much. I mean, I'm, calling a crosswind is you know, being nice, right. know, It's more right. And he came right in, like I mean, like you would think and see, and you can see it on the YouTube video. And it's just like, oh, why, oh, all right, because it was like a weird wind this way. He came in on you know, pretty much tailwinded. Because he wanted to get to that bed, because <laughs> well, it was that, like
1: especially if he had a negative experience just the day before.
3: Yep,
1: you know it's like he's like, hey, yep. that's not safe down there, man. I need to get to this spot. Uh-huh. You know,
3: you know, and and that's and it's not all deer. It, it's a few deer, but there is no concrete. Like no deer's not going to J hook every time he goes into bed because if he's late into a bed, he J hook. It's he exposed himself to, to possible danger. Mm-hmm. They'll J hook in the dark, you know, J hook at gray light. They're not going to J hook ten o'clock in the morning. <laughs> right, sorry it's not, right because it's like hey look at me don't kill me please you know like they right. want to get in the bed where it's safe the bed down and not move because mo- being motionless is one of the best <laughs> people don't talk about sitting still is one of their best things it was that one of their it, best defense mechanisms yeah, yeah. just don't move and how many times you see a deer you're like well how, how many deer?
1: times have you walked near a buck and got within like 10 yards of where he was bedded and he never moved until you were right on top of yeah. him, and boom the big, the big ones especially
3: they'll let you get right up on them and I had that in the Pine Barrens uh, when I belonged to a club doing drives the first opening morning. These deer would literally, I mean, you would almost have to step on them in little spikes and four pointers. You know, like I would never right. shoot them, but they just—they were taught at young age to stay down. Right. And 90% of the time, people walked right on past. And some of the biggest bucks we killed in that club were deer that went back through the drive. So they let us walk past and they were like doo, 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 out the back door. We'd always station people up. No, hmm. 90% of our bigger bucks were killed. You know, they let us walk past and go back. Right. You know?
1: Now, do you think tailwinding occurs more predominantly in, in any particular part of the season? Like, you know, I guess.
3: Probably early season, I, I would think, because it's less pressure and they've been going betting the food, betting the food. I and think. So that
1: route's been safe for the past nine years. Yeah. Six I think late season. Is.
3: I, I've never seen a late season. <laughs> just, you know, that's, right yeah. yeah it's the end of the season they are on high alert you know all the time right maybe in the rut because they know they've they've made that route like and you said tailwinding they might only be tailwinding for only 50 yards to get to that down right it's side not like Bettinger. they're
1: walking three miles with a tailwind yes. right yes. i think when people think of tailwinding it's like oh that deer travels only with a tailwind yeah. it's like I don't think a deer ever travels specifically with a type of wind predominantly yep. like all the time. Yes. I think that they use whatever wind it is that's best for them to get to where they need to go to. Yeah. And wind shifts and they, all the
3: time. If he gets into this bed and it's a northwest wind all of a sudden you know an hour late it's southeast. Oh fuck. You know. He's what's gonna he going to gonna do turn around and go find another bed? Yeah. You know what I mean? The, 10 o'clock in the morning? No he's going to sit there all day and not move. You know change his position where you know he can smell or see where danger going to come from. Right. You know and then he might have to tailwind that out of bed. It might be the last five minutes late, but he's gonna have to tailwind that bed because the wind's blowing this way, and there's, he's on a random betting on a point. It's like there's only one way to go, right? <laughs> and this is what I was talking about a little earlier: how
1: they they almost smell in three D, mm-hmm. right? Because you know the hardest part of wind is that when you have a north wind. It may not be a north wind where you're hunting, yeah. right? It's like I've gotten into the stand plenty of times or into a tree plenty of times where it's like it was a north wind when I looked at my at the weather before I got my truck, you know, or before I hiked in. And when I got, in, you know, into my tree, it was... Southwest wind, right? And so, I mean, Dan Enfeld has done like volumes yeah. on like how wind changes and eddies around, yeah. you know, around ridges, around tree lines, around open spots in the timber, yes. and like, you know, back drafts of wind. And stuff there's all this stuff that's going like it's happening to you. It's also happening to the deer. Yes. So, as unpredictable as it is for you, it's a little bit more predictable for them because they smell differently yeah. than. Then we see the wind, right? Because yeah. we're dropping milkweed, yeah. watching what the wind's doing. They're literally smelling how that's happening. Yeah. You know what I mean? So- and
3: also, they're they deer, and they're there every day. They you know, they live that every day. Like we're we're part time. Even right. even the most full time hunter, hunter, still a part time hunter, still a part time job. Yeah, you yeah. know it's like those deer born in that, Rio you know, they're going to die in it. It's yep. it's normal to them. It's not like the wind shifts. A buck don't go. Oh my god, the wind shift. We're all going to die and run around screaming. <laughs> you know, he just adjust. All right. What's the best way to adjust? Don't fucking move. Right. Get you in know? the bed and stay still. Yes. And, you know, dark will come and I'm somewhat safe and I'll go about my merry way. You know? Right. Exactly. You awesome.
1: Know? So that's tailwinding. On yeah. to the next. All right, folks. That is a wrap for today's show. I'd like to thank Greg for helping me put this series together. And there will be a few more coming out over the course of the year. Also, I'd like to thank all of you out there for listening. And if you haven't yet, please head over to iTunes and leave us a five-star rating. And be sure to subscribe to the podcast. It would be super appreciative if you'd be able to do those two things for me. And before we shut this thing down, I need to give a big shout-out to our partners who continue to help us make this podcast possible. Tethered, Exodus Outdoor Gear, Skull Brew Coffee Company, Obsession Bows, Ramcat Broadheads, Trophy Taker Rests, and Dead Downwind. And until next time, we'll see y'all.
4: November's on my
3: heels.
4: Makes me proud, makes me steal.
2: to go with like just full-blown redneck on these fish. This is like high-tech cane pole fishing right
0: here. From the white sandy beaches to the crystal blue waters, enjoy the best fishing Panama City Beach has to offer during Chase in the Sun, Sundays at 9.30 a.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment.